Welcome to the Healing While Black podcast, where we believe it's possible and necessary for Black people to heal, thrive, and celebrate our lives in the face of injustice. We'll highlight the often unheard voices and perspectives of Black people on a range of topics that impact our lives. I'm Misty. And I'm Kiana. And we're two Black women therapists with real lives trying to heal while Black and figure it all out too. Thanks for joining us. You ready? Mm-hmm. Hi, welcome back to the Healing While Black podcast. Today's episode, we're discussing mental health in the Black community and traditional therapy. All right. So this is definitely a topic that's relevant for the present moment. We're four days after the election and Joe Biden has been elected. All right. And no Trump. No, right. Uh, We get to have the first black woman ever, right? The first Jamaican, the first HBCU grad, the first Indian woman to hold the vice president title in office. Come on now. She she doing a damn thing. With (laughs) this election process and everything that's been happening, most of us could definitely use a therapist right now. I agree. I agree. So on today's episode, we interviewed therapist, educator, and speaker, Oren Howard, who's a clinical social worker. He speaks about his experience and knowledge as it pertains to Black people and mental health. But before we jump into the interview. Some of the ideas that we wanted to discuss today when it comes to mental health um, and Black people, the idea of stigma. The stigma that Black people feel or experience when... um, seeking mental health or even thinking about mental health services. And what we do know for sure is the stigma isn't anything new. It stems from a history of, uh, or how racism has impacted black people in all facets of life, including mental health. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, but let's, 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 let's talk a little bit about what that stigma is, right? Like what are some of these ideas that are out there, you know, that, that we think about, you know, when we when we're seeking mental health that might prevent us or stop us from from doing it. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I'll tell uh, I'll tell a personal story mm-hmm. <laughs> before I became a therapist <laughs> um, back in the back in the day, actually, when I was like in high school and and younger, I remember thinking therapy definitely was for white people. Mm. It definitely wasn't for black people because we had been through so much in life us personally and historically our ancestors that what would we need therapy for like we're strong we're resilient we can get Mm. through all this Mm. my thought was if you needed therapy you were kind of weak-minded because you couldn't get through whatever you needed to get through in life right right that's I think that's so right um therapy was not in the language of my upbringing at all, right? Like, what was like, what was that? I think that was something that maybe, you know, came into, you know, later on, maybe physical therapy was a thing, but not, but certainly not like mental health therapy, like going in and, Absolutely. you know, sitting with someone and, and, and talking with them about your problems. <laughs> and talking meant- about your problems. Could you imagine? We did not do that. And not to mention, we 
don't let nobody in on our business. Like who I'm right. going to leave my home to go to someone's office to talk about my family business. Right. Talk about the violation. At least that's what I thought growing up. Exactly. And that's the message that I received from the community is, you know, you keep that stuff in house because once you let it out, they are going to do something to negatively impact me, my family or whoever this story is about. So that kind of takes us to another part of the stigma, which is the lack of trust in the system. Right. Like growing up. Right. I remember having I right now you and I are both social workers. Right. We're, you know, we're clinical social workers and we do therapy. But I remember viewing social workers back then as people who come in and like break up the home and mess up, mm-hmm. you know, and, and mess up people's lives. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Right. There's all that that skepticism, you know, around it. I also think, you know, this, this kind of goes back to, you know, some of the sort of experiments and things that happened, you know, back in the day. Oh, yes. The history of, of mental health and the connection to Black people. Right. Talk about the lack and trust in the system. That's, <laughs> it started with slavery. Mm-hmm. Exactly. What did they try? You know, when what is the the term that they use when slaves wanted to run away from slavery? It was considered right. a mental illness. Exactly. What was it called? Dropatomania, right? Right. Like, yeah, you can drop me off back where you picked me up from. How about that? <laughs> like, then where I ain't got to run. How about that? Right. Right. Just my basic need for decent existence a decent existence a decent life to be treated humanely was considered a mental illness if I wanted to escape right that environment like how how and yet help that idea helped to create the stigma that we see today it has gone throughout generations and generations and generations of black people right absolutely and I you know early on during the days of slavery, Black people were actually, and even, you know, shortly thereafter, Black people were actually seen to be immune um, to mental health issues, right? They, you know, it was sort of this idea that, you know, there's no such thing as enslaved people having a mental illness, right? There's no, you know, this is what their lives are, you know, and this this is just how it is, right? Um, And that was really tied to keeping black folks enslaved right and that that idea so if we look at the idea of running away being a runaway slave was considered a mental illness then we look at the idea that black people can't have a mental illness because they're immune was another idea but to me those two ideas in itself was based in control Mm -hmm. i want to they wanted to be able to control right us and what we did and what we had access to and how we were defined and it all mental health and mental illness was always used as another form of control for black people. absolutely right hence the mistrust hence the stigma you know it all it all goes together absolutely and i think right because later you know that right we, we get this idea that actually black people are more susceptible to mental illness and then we get people being over diagnosed you know, with, with certain conditions like schizophrenia and kind of being pushed into, you know, these mental health hospitals and institutions mm-hmm. and everything, right? And being experimented on and all of that stuff. And a lot of that was, right, that was post, you know, slavery, you know. Absolutely. We can look at the overdiagnosis of ADHD in children. We can look at right. the overdiagnosis of 
bipolar in black people. Like there are certain certain diagnoses that will go, that are ease more easily given out to black people nowadays. Right. Right. There's no there's no wonder why uh, black folks have been skeptical, you know, of using mental health um, supports as a way to to heal, you know, and address issues um, that that we face. Right. Absolutely. Um, and I, I, I think another factor, though, is because we've as black people have been through so much, it's we kind of get to a place where we're used to functioning in dysfunction and sometimes don't understand that we're in the dysfunction because it's all we've ever known. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. So in, in, in the idea of, well, I don't need a therapist. When I get angry, I just go to the bar, get me a drink, get me a fifth, whatever. I'm going to be all right. Let me just get that drink. So that maladaptive coping has made us think we were resilient or getting through things when actually we a lot of times aren't or haven't absolutely been. right like our coping mechanisms are our, our ways of actually dealing with the, those problems are themselves problematic right or can absolutely. themselves be quite destructive you know to and us. don't get us any closer to healing it kind of keeps us in the system of dysfunction that kind of has been created for us. <laughs> There's a piece of it that I think is linked back to, you know, um, how, you know, beating, beating enslaved people and, you know, kind of doing things that would bring them under full submission, you know, were ways, those are, you know, if, if there was a consideration that we could have a mental illness, those were the solutions to kind of alleviate it right to beat it out of them if they you know just to kind of show other folk you know the other enslaved people that that's not the way right and that's the way to keep them in line so that is like their mental health treatment right so and and so embedded in the way that we treat ourselves is this very like historically destructive you know way of of you know of dealing absolutely absolutely and so we understand what mental health kind of looked like for us or what we were um uh, how we were allowed to exist in the mental health space but I feel like things are changing I feel like Mm. the stigma when it comes to therapy and mental health and mental illness is kind of um it's adjusting not kind of it is adjusting now we hear mental health and therapy talked about in entertainment by black entertainers a lot now we hear it we see it in in the schools we you know um Mm -hmm. the idea of a healthy emotional state i think is becoming important especially during these times where black folks is are really seeing how systemic racism and oppression is impacting us what i know for for a fact is i am human so I can be hurt. I can be impacted. I can, I, I feel things a lot of times that I feel like we haven't been able to openly feel before. Mm. And when we are now feeling and aware of all the crap that's going on in this world against us, we are now starting to understand, oh yeah, it makes sense right. why I'm irritable all the time or why I'm angry or why I, or why I'm feeling depressed. Absolutely. And acknowledging that those feelings of sadness and those feelings of hopelessness 
can be depression. Right. right? Absolutely. Um, right. Acknowledging that, I mean, just what you said, we're, we're human, right? So we, we naturally will experience the range of emotions, you know, that come with dealing with living in the environment that we do. Right. Absolutely. Right. And, and, you know, we may not get to express them in the same way that, you know, gets sort of normalized for maybe white folks or, you know, Mm. and other groups, but we experience them for me. Like I, I, you know, I got to listen to, um, you know, Jay-Z, Jay-Z is, you know, one of the folks that I've heard talk a little bit about mental illness. Um, He did a, a CNN interview. um, And I remember listening and hearing him talk about his use of therapy um, and it being Mm -hmm. so helpful. And for the first time in his life, having the, you know, the ability to talk about kind of fear and, you know, things that he had experienced growing up that he never got the chance to, 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 to really talk about, you know, one of the things that was real poignant about what he said, you know, this experience of kind of making eye contact with each other Uh, how that becomes like a threat and it kind of creates this like anxiety and and kind of fear inside but of course you can't really show that sort of anxiety and fear you know in a you know in a vulnerable way um and so it it, it becomes so what you can express though is anger and, and violence in a way and so how sometimes that becomes like a trigger you know someone kind of looks you in the eye that's like a that's a diss and and part of what that is is that that kind of gets to that sensitivity of people being afraid to be seen by others absolutely that example of jay-z where we're learning to function in a way that is not healthy causes trauma that we then take throughout our lives as adults if we learn this growing up let's say in the hood Mm -hmm. we are traumatized from this experience and we're not necessarily aware that this is happening so the to me the way that therapy helps Mm -hmm. is you come into therapy you have these discussions and then you're able to recognize things that seem normal to you Mm -hmm. this seems like behavior that has to happen and make sense in some instances absolutely because before anything you have to stay safe and you have to be alive absolutely (laughs) right to process and deal with these things but even jay-z has a quote from that interview that says mental health trauma ptsd is so rampant in our community as scared as black folks are of the cops we're even more scared of therapists Mm. it's so interesting and it's so to me, that connects back to the history that we were talking about earlier, right. that we're scared of therapists because it has been ingrained in us that this process of mental health is not for us. So why would I then explore therapy when I know damn well it wasn't made for me? Right. Right. So that right. There's that piece of it. I also think, you know, that experience of, you know, w- what we think about when we think about therapy is, you know, we're going to go sit down and talk about our problems and right. And that that's, that's part of what it is. Right. But like, I think that fear of talking about what hurts, right. That fear of talking about pain, that fear of talking about fear, right. Of having those things, you know, of, of that, I think is, is present for us too. Right. Cause what, what ends, what happens when we go through that, right. It's, it, incredibly vulnerable right and we have been 
it's part of our culture to to not show vulnerability, right? Because that could be, I mean, part of that is a survival, you know. Strategy, right, I was going to say, right? when has it ever benefited a Black person to be vulnerable in this country, in this world, right? So we're taught that vulnerability mm-hmm. kind of equals weakness. Well, weakness or, or, or it's just not safe, right? Like we, when we, exactly. when we, when we show our vulnerable selves, we show it, we, we tend to show it when we feel like we can let our guard down, right? We tend to show it when we have been made to feel safe. In our last episode, we talked about this concept of safety and how, you know, I, I think it's, it's, there's not that sense of safety in, in the country that we live in, right? In, in the experience of being black, right? There's very few spaces where we can go where we feel safe and okay to let down our guard, right? So that guard is always up, right? And so it's like in therapy, if we're, if we're asked to kind of drop that guard, it's like, okay, who are we when we do that? Like, what does that mean? Like, does that mean that we then fall apart and that we then don't know how to kind of, you know, be anymore and that those ideas of us being strong and, you know, able to withstand oppression and and all these different problems kind of falls down. And so I, I, that's very interesting. Yeah. I, I know for me specifically, when I first started um, going to therapy uh, through my postpartum depression experience, the thought of being vulnerable for me, I was, wasn't with it in therapy because I felt inevitably my vulnerability would be used against me in a negative way. Mm. And especially if we're talking like uh, postpartum depression, because your greatest fear is that they're going to be like, you too crazy to take care of your baby. Mm. Let me go ahead and take this baby away from you because you're a psychopath, wow. <laughs> right? Absolutely. That, is, that was my biggest fear. Yeah. That... So let me tell you what got me to a place. Well, a few things got me to the place where I, I realized that I had to be vulnerable. One was I had this little baby and he did not deserve a mother that was not willing to tackle her issues, right? He deserved a healthy mother. Mm-hmm. And two, mm-hmm. girlfriend got her a black therapist. Okay. Because it was <laughs> a, I had, before that I had a white therapist and it was, I was doing it for my son, but it, it was, it was more difficult. But when I, I don't even remember her name, but she was this little black woman <laughs> and I went into her <laughs> office and there was a sense of relief because she was black. I didn't know that. And then a sense of comfort that I felt because I didn't have to explain my experience. I didn't have to explain what it meant to mm, be black or what yep. the black experience was. Not to say all know. black therapists are the greatest for black people, but I knew for me specifically, that was my end. I needed an end. And she was my end to this mm-hmm. process. And with the work with her, I learned a lot about myself and the way I kind of um, process things. Yeah. Wow, that's... Yeah, that 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 point is so real, you know, about like, right, not initially not feeling comfortable, kind of being vulnerable because of the fear of, you know, what could potentially happen, right, like with your family, uh-huh. right? Um, yeah, I think my experience, you know, in addition to, you know, to some of that was about, you know, I, I mean, I remember kind of not feeling okay with showing that I had vulnerable feelings Mm -hmm. you know what I mean that I um that I was 
um, insecure or, you know, that I was sad or that I, you know, felt anxious or that I, you know, or, you know, just things like that, like not feeling like there was a space to, to kind of, to show that because of, I think I felt like I had to like show that I had my shit all together. Right. right? Cause that's part that's of our, like, you're a strong you know what black I mean? woman, like, aren't you? Right. Right. Exactly. And so, right. It was hard to be like, ah, you know, I don't, and I, and I need mm-hmm. help. And so it was, it, I think it was always hard to show um, anything other than that. I remember going into therapy and I remember going into her and be like, how do I have the right to be depressed? I said, my mother came from a whole nother country, made a whole way of life. I said, my, my, my father grew up with out a mother and a father. Like, what do you mean I'm depressed? I had slaves that was getting their ass whooped and they still made it through life. What you mean I'm depressed? I have nothing to complain about. That was my thought process. And in working in therapy, I had it brought me to the idea that, oh girl, you are human. Guess what? going to feel things. And guess what? You're not always going to be able to process those on your own, or you're not always going to be able to figure it out on your own. And that is part of what makes me human. Exactly. Exactly. What kind of makes me happy is to see that the, the discussion of mental health and mental illness is really permeating our society but when especially when it comes to entertainment like we talked about jay-z Charlemagne the god a a radio personality Mm. out of new york city has been everywhere encouraging black people black men to kind of explore their traumas and understand and being aware that kind of what i'm saying we're human and so we are impacted by these circumstances and these feelings and a lot of times we don't process these things i heard last week the baby he's mm. out there talking i mean not even a week later talking about how he kind of wished his brother had therapy how he's thinking about going to therapy now how mental health and mental illness is real and important and we need to address it insecure one of my right. favorites Absolutely. i love me some insecure they had a insecure right. yes. they had a, a characters that were dealing with mental illness so the fact that it's mm-hmm. it's 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 being addressed more and there's a conversation that where we as a community are having around it I really it's I think a great change I'm happy that we're getting to you know that place where we are you know able to talk about you know mental health we're normalizing it you know more and more um and I am thankful for to you know kind of our celebrities for helping to Especially for the younger generations, you know, they're so a lot of times connected with pop culture and entertainment Mm -hmm. that if they hear it in a song or if they hear their favorite person discussing it, it lessens the stigma and the hesitancy to think that it's a real thing that can be, you know, addressed for themselves. Um, And I think it's I think it's very powerful to hear black men and black women talk about therapy. I agree. I remember <laughs> when I first started um, seeking help for ther- uh, seeking therapeutic help. I didn't know I was anxious. Like I didn't know what anxiety felt like, you know, and I didn't know necessarily mm-hmm. what depression mm-hmm. felt like. I was like, no, I'm not depressed. I'm pissed off all the time, mm-hmm. but I'm not depressed. <laughs> and my therapist right. had to explain <laughs> to me that irritability can be a symptom of depression. And most times, not most times, a lot of times, that's how it shows for Black people. 
So we don't, a lot of us don't get depressed in that traditional right. sense where that's not the only way it can look. And a lot of times for Black people, Absolutely. it doesn't look that way. Depression didn't look that way for me. It looked like irritability. Like, why are you talking to me? Get out my face. Why are you here? Why are you blinking? Why are you breathing? Like, that's how right. my depression manifests because I was unable to deal mm. with my internal feelings. They were, it was too much. So mm. everything that came at me became an irritation. And that's how I right. expressed my depression. So not saying traditional symptoms don't show in Black people, but also for Black people, mm -hmm. there are symptoms that aren't necessarily um, connected. Right. There are other ones. There are other right, symptoms. exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And right. I had Absolutely. to learn that. And, and some of those, exactly right. And some of those symptoms may be kind of what we see as like norms that's of what it was kind of behavior in in you know in the black community right because for right? me like, i was like oh no 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 i'm not depressed or anything. i'm just a bitch right i'm just a bitch people describe me as a bitch and so i was cool with all right i'm a bitch like that way i don't have to explain nothing to you it's just ooh, you know what you're gonna get right and i didn't understand mm -hmm. that my bitchiness was literally a symptom of my depression that connection right. never would have, I would have never made that connection unless I had entered the therapeutic space. Right, right. And right, because what, what we end up with when we go, we when we are in those therapeutic spaces is some language to be able to identify what we've been experiencing. And, and just having that, being able to name that is part of the, the healing process, right? Being able to say, this is what this is, right? So the in our interview with Oren covers a lot of these um, these ideas when it comes to mental health and healing and therapy in the Black community. So we recorded this interview with Oren a little while back. Um, a lot of stuff has changed, um, you know, since that moment, or a lot of stuff has happened since that moment. But the issues that we're talking about are still very relevant um, to the topic and moment we're in right now. Right. And just to give you guys a little heads up, due to some technical issues, I sound like I'm in a toilet during most of this interview. So <laughs> that's the toilet sound. You know what? I'm not talking to you. <laughs> to keep you guys from having to listen to me in a toilet, you'll hear Misty mostly throughout the interview, but she did a great job. They did a great job. So guys, take a listen. Oren, what brought you into the field of mental health? And tell us a little bit about the current work that you're involved in. Sure. One of the things that brought me into the field was a calling. I actually did not want to be in this field. I was always kind of taught to go into fields that were more traditionally financially lucrative. I believe that what happened was I remember being at Bright Hope Baptist Church as a child and that was my first kind of real introduction to um, service and service for others. I grew up in uh, Maryland, Montgomery County, but I also spent my summers back home in Philadelphia. And I saw a homeless child for the first time. I can't remember how old I was. I always thought that homeless people were like kind of winos or people that, you know, were uh, that failed at life because I didn't know any better. Um, and we didn't have much in Philadelphia, so I couldn't imagine what, what, what led them to that point. But when I saw a baby 
that came into my grandmother used to feed the homeless every month, every week or whatever. And I used to co go there as well. And when I saw it, I think that's the first time I understood that it was bigger than what my little mind had created. And so lo and behold, I still was somewhat resistant to it, but my life, personal life experiences and some of the things that I have um, lived through and become resilient as a result of led me to this place where I realized that I was, I, I had the ability to help people um, in their lives and based on my experiences, I could relate to it better. That being said, I was super excited about this field when I got into it because I, I was always known by my friends as the little counselor. I didn't even know what the counselor was. So people used to call me on the phone and tell me about their problems. It used to help hurt me too. Cause I used, I might not, I might like the girl and, but she wanted to talk about her problems about her boyfriend. So, you know, I was an active <laughs> listener <laughs> and that was somewhat challenging. But as I got older, I grew appreciation for it. What I'm doing now is I own my own private practice called Inspire Leadership uh, Therapy and Consultant Services uh, located in Maryland. I also am a professor at the University of Maryland going into my 12th year. I do public speaking um, on different various topics and um, that's pretty much what I do besides fathering my 18-year-old. <laughs> right. So you have about 20 plus years in the field, right? Mm -hmm. um, what have you seen um, or how have you seen mental health for black people change or evolve, you know, throughout the course of the, the time that you've been engaged in the field? Sure. That's a um, complicated question. When I was at Howard University School of Social Work in the 90s, um, I was there during a, one of the pivotal times in, in the mental health field as it relates to our people. I actually had graduated just recently before the Million Man March. Um, when we were coming up in that, during that time, we were taught to be more eclectic, um, take and borrow from different models of practice to make it culturally competent to the population that we serve. It wasn't that we weren't introduced to evidence-based, it wasn't that there wasn't a belief in evidence-based practices, but there was just a mindset that there was recognition that most of the practices that were created weren't created for us, by us. And so we had the fortunate ability to get exposed to um, organizations at the time like Progressive Life Center, who had into psychology um, and different approaches that would address our population. I started teaching at the University of Maryland about 12 years ago. When I came there, that was 2008, another significant pivotal time because it was around the housing crisis and one of the biggest recessions. One of the things in 2008 to 2010, I noticed a big shift in um, how students were admitted um, and what kind of focus they came into. Um, there was a more stringent requirement when I first got there. And because of the financial crisis and some of the other things, it came in a little different. And then we talk about generational changes. And so as it relates to our people, one of the things that I can say throughout time, since the time that I started working in the field all the way through, is that although stigma is huge in the mental health community still, in the African-American community or people of color, 
the reality is that the walls are getting broken a little bit. There's more understanding that this is total total wellness and not just, um, you know, prying into your history. People are starting to understand a bigger picture. And that same goes for the clinicians and the upcoming clinicians. They understand that you can no longer, at least in the field of social work, you can no longer um, just ignore systemic racism um, in your model of practice, in your um, strategies, and even your planning around clients. And that's critical to where we are today in the wake of, you know, this awakening that uh, people appear to have right now. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would say the biggest thing that I've noticed in the 20 years is that the need has not decreased. Um, the need for mental health has probably uh, been the same. Like Do Dr. Joy DeGruy's work is that in post-traumatic slave syndrome, she talks about the notion of that we never healed from slavery. I fundamentally believe that's true. And so because we've never healed, I think now over 20 years of being in the field, people are start starting to explore their own healing now. Mm, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to I want to move into you know you kind of mentioned the the a little bit about the current moment that we're in where we're kind of experiencing this big uproar in the country around police violence against Black people. Mm -hmm. um, how you know in what ways has the current moment that we're in impacted or how is it impacting the the work that you're doing? What do you see coming up with the folks that you are working with? I teach uh, clinical practice with African-American families. I'm actually in the semester now during the summer session. I also have a contract out um, with Baltimore City working with 11 magnificent youth of color, teaching them healing-centered engagement. And I have some mm -hmm. other things going on. I think the time is now. Like, um, I think what's happened is that the repetitive years of saying the same thing, feeling the same way, expressing and identifying the same issues, um, I think because of the pandemic and because of circumstances now, and because of the witness, the witness of a murder, two murders in a short time period, and, a, and, and two others that were accounted for during that time period, I think people can't avoid it. And so what we're seeing is a very critical point in mental health and mental health in the African-American community because we can't have this double consciousness. We can't live in two worlds. We can't continue to be uh, Anglo conformist. Um, we have to start to shift the narrative to addressing what's really happening. We can't ask for statues to come down and then walk on the same street with the same name. We can't. We have to entire. We have to fight the entire system of it, and that means in a profession we have to fight the system that we enabled our clients to be, be in. So, you know, if you're going to teach history about social work and you're going to talk about the, the founders of social work, then we would be remiss to talk about the 120-something cities that were predominantly African-American throughout this country that all got burned to the ground or taken down or whatever that had their own social services. So we can't, we have to start to change the narrative. If we're going to talk about Juneteenth, we can't say that somehow Garrison and Texas did not get the word. That's not accurate. They, Texas is in the South and they knew that slavery ended and they were deceptive. And so 
for us as mental health clinicians, we have to do a better job of being accountable and responsible to accurate information. For our work with clients, we have to be more accountable and responsible to how systemic racism and oppression impacts them on a day-to-day -day basis. So what I'm seeing is that there's more discussion. People are tired, but people are doing things. What you're seeing is different movements. We'll see if it's sustainable because you're talking about a system and for 400 plus years, you know, the system has benefited and done exactly what it's supposed to do. So for it to be undone or taken down and rebuilt or whatever and stuff like that, that requires people to give up things that, that they didn't quite necessarily earn. And I don't know if we're at that place yet. So we as mental health professionals have to be more focused, more uh, uh, intentional about not enabling uh, a system that, that suppresses the very people that we serve. When we were in school, it was so few of us, but we all had such a desire and drive to not do it like it's been done because we knew it wasn't built for us. So we, I know me and Misty specifically, try to approach it in a, in a, in a way that we know it wasn't built for us. So I'm hoping with the, the changes and the younger people coming in, that will just be their mindset. Absolutely, but I, I hold everybody accountable. As a matter of fact, I, I have a Zoom meeting coming up this Thursday with former students of mine to talk about how we're going to start planning and preparing for the pandemic in 2020 and, and the systemic oppression. So there needs to be action plans, I would say, yeah. as well. I gave a speech last year at the university um, during Black Lives Matter um, during one of the student organizations, and I asked how many techniques do you, have you ever explored or studied that were created by people of color for people of color? One of the most disenfranchised populations in the history of this planet, and there's nothing. And so I challenge that notion that regardless of age that we're doing enough. And, and me and my age, I'm doing enough. I'm not doing enough. I just learned about the Wilmington uh, Massacre of 1898 just last week. And I teach a course and I have a minor in African-American studies. So, so it is the commitment to putting ourselves in position to really understand the impact so that it cannot be done again. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You talk about folks using or not using approaches that were born out of, you know, or came that came from black folks in the mental health field. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about what what unique approaches that you use, you know, with black youth, adults, you know, and families that have specific relevance to the black community and the black experience. Sure. One that I'm most um, interested in currently is one that I was just taught by the um, Black Mental Health Alliance, which operates out of uh, Baltimore, Maryland, Healing Centered Engagement, which takes that takes um, trauma-informed care to another level. It actually allows people in their structure, their infrastructure to heal themselves however they need to heal them. It allows for ritualistic uh, things to occur. It allows for protests. So part of healing in a community, maybe y'all might have to march on the school. Y'all might have to go down to city hall. You may have to protest. You may have to do different things other than just talking about your trauma, but actually being a part of your own solution 
And what yeah. we're trying to teach these young people who will then go out and teach other young people is that you can be part of your solution, which is the next tier beyond just being trauma informed or trauma focused. So that's one example of one. And that's based on some concept of Ubuntu, which is Swahili, I am as we are. And so that's an important concept for that comes out of a culture that we're born from. And so I think that is essential for development. And then there's other things like into psychology, um, which started by a couple um, African-American psychologists, um, which, which talks about the art of joining within the process with your clients, which is not typical to Western right. strategies and, and actually giving more of yourself because that's what our community focuses on. And then there's other techniques as well that, 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 that not just techniques, but concepts that need to be factored in like Cross's theory of uh, racialization that was done a long time ago that talked about how one's concept of race is formed. Um, you know, you can even look at, I think it's Parham's <laughs> white identity uh, concept. And so, and there's a biracial one as well. And so there's some some things out there, Kwanzaa, Dr. Kwanzaa Kanjufu and the conspiracy to destroy little black boys, uh, the fourth grade syndrome. And so, you know, becoming more familiar with that. So along with techniques, there are concepts constructs and things like that that are critical for the overall development of of being more culturally competent i love that i you know mm -hmm. and and i think i love the idea that there actually are you know approaches that really stem from the black experience really and really take into account the black experience and i love the concept that you know social action is therapeutic as well right yes. there's this empowering component that becomes very therapeutic you know and very healing so i really love hearing you know your insights on that so as an educator you're an educator um are you know are you seeing more you know students that are or you know black mental health professionals coming through the field um for many years at the university i could identify maybe three other four other african-american males there that teach there at the university. Um, now, now there's it seems it appears to be there's more of them, but I, I don't really know. I, I can't really confirm it based off the pictures and things like that. So I'm excited to see that um, more people are talking about it in uh, in the school's early age. The group that I'm working with in Baltimore City, part of it is they'll be mentored with uh, Maryland alumni around the field of social work, so they can explore the career of coming into social work and stuff like that. Yeah, um, I, think, I think it is important though what you said about, you know, there not being a lot of black male, you know, mental health professionals in the field. Um, and I'm, you know, wondering how we encourage folks to, you know, to come into the field. Because I know that there's, there's a big, big need. Um, can you talk about your experience as a black male doing this work? Sure. Um, I guess you can look at it a couple ways. Like um, when you're one of few, I, I graduated with a large class, but there was only probably about 20 males in the class that I graduated with. And out of those 20 males, probably only 10 or less than 10 were African-American. The, there wasn't a lot of variety, um, a lot of consistency. And I think one of the things about recruiting so my experience was unique in the sense that um, I had I had 
a girlfriend at the time that had told me about it. Um, she had graduated from Maryland. I, that's where I went to undergrad and she, from the psychology program, and she told me about the different variety of it. And what happened is that I was a career resource counselor at Maryland and it kept testing for the same thing called social work. So I, and I wanted to go to HBCU. So I went a historically black college. So I went to Howard and I joined the program. And so what I would say, my experience was really unique because by the time I got to Howard, academic was no longer a game for me. Like I took it serious. I knew what was on the line. I knew that what I say and what I do and how I help people was going to be critical. I, I said when I was 21, which when I entered the program, I said that I was going to um, offer the same quality program of any high price psychiatrist or anybody else that's doing the service for a lower price to my people. And so that was the motivation behind it. So when I was in class and we were studying uh, Sigmund Freud, PSJ, um, and all the other traditional theorists, I was also bringing in Dr. Naeem Akbar to class. I had read your chapter, plus I added some more. I had um, brought in, you know, Dr. Kwanzaa Kanjufu, who I've had a chance to talk to both of them, you know, in my life. And so, you know, I was bringing in some of that perspective. I was um, at the uh, Black-owned bookstore during a break. I remember when I was in school, O.J. Simpson trial was going on. And so I was in the Black-owned bookstore at the very minute the verdict came out. And, you know, so I surrounded myself with culture. I surrounded myself with accountability, saying code for bookstores on Georgia Avenue and all these other places that I, that I kind of kept my, kept my ears open, listened to some of the elders talk and teach. Um, you know, one of the things that, I, that I'm very proud of, I don't think I've shared this with many people, is that there was a guy that used to be out in the street. I, I think he was home, well, he was homeless and he used to want to uh, wipe off my windshield in my car. And I'm like, nah, bro, you ain't got to do that. And I used to give him money and we had a re kind of relationship. One day I was walking down the street and I seen this guy walking with Howard on the back of his, uh, a shirt with Howard on the back of it. And I was like, man, that shirt looks so familiar. I had forgotten that I gave him my, some of my clothes. And it was one of my football jerseys from intramurals and undergrad. And he had my name on it. And I was thinking, like, you know, when, when we're a community and things like that, this is the kind of things that we have to do. So I was bringing that into the classroom. I was uh, making sure that when I got something to eat, you know, I would get him something to eat. I wasn't giving the cash because... He had all the symptoms of using, but I was giving him some things. And, and I don't say that to talk about, you know, this, the, the, the community service part of it. I, I say it to say that community is essential part of my development into this field of mental health. And so it's been that way. Um, I think as Haile Selassie says, knowledge without that, that that's not given is not knowledge at all. And so I make this point to have any information that I have make sure that it's passed down, passed around, circulated as I learned so that we can continue to grow in this field. So that's been my experience. And I never allow anybody to tell me what I can't do in this field because nobody was there on 11th and Masters when I was coming up in Philly. Nobody was there when I was in Gaithersburg, when I was had to have a double identity and, and make white people feel comfortable as a kid. Now, you know, I went to my reunion not too long ago, my 
30 year reunion not too long ago. And um, some of the people that I went to school with that I didn't remember said I was one of the nicest people I ever met, but they don't know the consequence of me being so nice to try and fit in. And so those, those kind of things I, I kept with me and I kept close to my heart as we traveled through that journey. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. Bringing it back to you know you and your, your therapeutic practice, um, what are some of the common struggles that you see Black people come in uh, for therapy with? Um, are there any themes that you that you tend to notice? Um, a, lo- a lot of times nowadays, uh, depression, anxiety is a theme for not just people of color, but for everybody. But in particular, when talking about African Americans, I think we've been in an age of truth under this political administration. And I think there was an element of, oh my God, we had a first black president and things didn't change the way I thought they would. And I think that that is critical to um, the development of, of, of people's anxieties and stress. And then we had the next response to it, which was the next response was, all right, now we have Donald Trump, which his existence <laughs> indicates the the blindness and the real truth of what's going on in the African-American community and the white mainstream community. And so people, I had a high spike in cases after the election of Donald Trump. I had a high spike in cases during the pandemic. I had a high spike in cases during the protests. I had to change every one of my sessions goals to focus on the impact of witnessing terrorism and and those kind of things um and so themes overall i think you know uh anxiety and stress is is prominent and but if you're asking me within african-american community um in my practice what i've seen is i see a lot of challenges around anxiety depression and relationships yeah, yeah. And post-traumatic, yeah, sense. and post-traumatic slave syndrome and post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, one of our biggest hopes for this particular episode is to, you know, welcome Black folks that need support. You know, we want to encourage them to move in the healing process, right? So have you seen therapy to be beneficial to Black folks, right? There, um, you know, there's a lot of questions, I think, in the Black community about whether therapy or you know mental health services are for us yeah yeah i mean if you've ever taken a class with me i say even if you're a therapist or a student you have to have your own therapist if you want to be really good at this and so i have my own therapist and i expect that everybody that's going to do this is going to have their own therapist because it is about total wellness and so a lot of people attack their problems from the spiritual space, and that's great. But spirituality, in particular religiosity, has values to it, and that make people feel a particular way. If you subscribe to the rules and guides of the Bible, they have specific rules and guides that you have to or should adhere to. Same with the Quran. But when you talk about a mental health provider, a skilled one, you're talking about judgment-free helping you maximize who you are. Somebody sitting with you, listening to you from the standpoint of of understanding and not with the judgment, no matter what you say. 
no matter what you did, no matter what experiences you had. Now, mind you, there are mandated reporting issues, like if you harm somebody or plan to harm yourself and those kind of things, but those are exceptions to the rule. But I think people have that have in our community that have not experienced it have no idea. They may talk about therapy, but they have no idea what it's like to be in that situation. You could have a really good friend, a really good family member, but it all comes with value judgments. This situation, if it's done well, does not. And and that's and, and people need to dispel that energy. They need to learn how to breathe again. They need to learn how to do different things to really fight and combat some of the things that's in their lives that convince them to run a script that's counterproductive to their outcomes. Beautiful. Speak on it, brother. Speak on it. <laughs> <laughs> My sister is coming to you, but she has an opinion about it. This is why you get your whole ass therapist. So, you know, they right. have no judgment and you feel more free. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> it's perfect. All right. So tell us about your, your new podcast, uh, The Unicorn's Couch. I didn't want to take away from your 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 podcast experience i wasn't going to mention it at all but what? here we are here we are <laughs> let's go come on so, the unicorn's couch is a concept that was uh brought to me from several different factors some friends one of my friends in texas some former students and said you know a lot of times things that we're talking about we need to give to a larger audience it's called the unicorn's couch for a couple reasons a couch is conducive of a space that people sit and and ideally can relax. And uh, one of the greatest tools that a therapist could have is a big couch, someplace where somebody can relax and breathe. The unicorn is the fact that there are very few people, men of color, that do this. We're often referred to as unicorns. And so we started this podcast with the hope of uplifting people. Um, We're on most of the major venues, uh, Apple, um, TuneIn, iHeart, we're on most of them, Deezer, Stitcher, all kinds of things that we're on that allow people to engage with us. Um, we're brand new, so we're up to about, we get we have uh, listeners from the United States, from Barbados, from France right now, um, and we're hoping to see how this goes. It looks like we're going to have to expand it out. People are looking for season two already. Um, we're in about the third or fourth episode, but the guy, a whole idea behind it was to uplift the community and uplift each other. Yeah, I, I love it. I got to listen to the um, first episode. I'm excited. Real powerful stuff in there. Um, just hearing from other brothers that are, you know, doing really great work. Um, we bring an element of spiciness and authenticity we do not know the questions we only know the topics so we wanted to make it as authentic as possible so we um don't really um get a chance to really rehearse anything we actually go in and we speak from the heart and our real experiences in real time all right so to any of our listeners out there that are going through something um some things but are kind of struggling with the idea of, you know, coming to therapy. Um, they're, they're reluctant to come to therapy. What, what might you say to them? Yeah. Uh, invest in yourself. The greatest gift you can give yourself is freedom. And a lot of times pain restricts you from having freedom. You operate in a paradigm of fear 
and fear prohibits you from being the best version of yourself, maximizing your relationships, becoming better. A person that wants to be better will realize that I got to learn how to do something different. I need help with that. A person that wants to perpetuate the same thing that happened the last generation will do the same thing. Why stay in the past? Be present. And so um, we, we take risks for so many other things. We take risks by starting relationships with people we don't really know that well. Having children with people you don't really know that well. We take risks for going after jobs that we don't even know if it's good or not. We take risks for, you know, things that are on the surface. We eat foods. We do things that we just take risks. We trust the restaurant. We trust that. Why not take a risk on yourself? Why not believe in you? And if you're going to do it, why do you think you can do it alone? So I appreciate the work that you ladies are doing. I appreciate the voice that you will have in the community. I'm, I'm sorry we didn't cross paths at the university because um, you would have seen right. one one rebel up in there. I would have loved it. <laughs> I, was, I was feeling so low, do low, me and Misty. All right. So I wish you guys well. We'll continue to be in this fight together. I appreciate Absolutely. you so much um, for what you Absolutely. guys stand for and what you represent. And I'm super proud of the work that y'all going to do. So let's make this thing happen. Yes. Wow. Yes. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Lauren. We appreciate it. That was a great discussion with Oren. Thank you, Oren. I love that, right? That, that idea that, you know, there's, we heal, you know, collectively, you know, um, and, you know, I, I think one of the things that I love about the healing and healing centered engagement um, is the, you know, the community aspect of it, right? And, and the bringing in, you know, of, of, you know, kind of cultural pieces, right? It kind of actually, in many ways, like moves against sort of that Anglo conformist kind of way um, of healing. I think the piece that I specifically love is, you know, the reality that you can, we can get healing when we're engaged um, and making changes in our community and, you know, working on social justice issues, right? If we're, if we're dealing with issues that impact the well-being of our community, part of healing can be addressing those issues, you know, so that things can change so that we're, we're working on kind of collective healing. Right. And what I love about the, the idea of healing centered engagement is it's non, it's a non-clinical approach and it's also mm -hmm. based right. on a strength-based approach, right? Yep. It's a holistic view, but it more looks at how culture and identity is the center of well-being. So it goes against the idea of Anglo-conformism in that I have to do what you have defined mm -hmm. as my path of healing. I get to identify my path of healing as it pertains to me and my culture, right? Yep. Because honestly, as a therapist... I have a lot of hesitation and a lot of and a lot of feelings about uh, um, the modalities that we are taught to use to mm -hmm. address our clients in therapy. Uh, a lot of my um, yeah, my feelings in the master's de master's degree program that I was in, where we learned this information, was how do you apply this 
to a black person, let's say growing up in the hood, right? Right. That I feel like is missing in a lot of the things that we are taught as therapists in ways to address uh, issues for everyone. So it doesn't apply to everyone. It applies to white folks or it applies to certain folks, but it doesn't apply to all folks, specifically black folks. Right. A lot of those, these therapeutic modalities and practices assume that, you know, you, you already have a sense of safety, right? You already, Mm -hmm. you know, have, you know, they, they kind of assume these, these kind of privileges actually that come with whiteness, Mm -hmm. right. That Mm -hmm. don't exist in the same way for black folks, right? Like we, right. Right. We experience a level of trauma that isn't necessarily experienced in other cultures. Exactly. And I feel like the trauma that we can go through an experience is missing from the modalities that some of the modalities that we're taught um, as therapists. Right. Trauma-informed care. Right, like racial trauma. Right. Racial trauma. Trauma-informed care is, to me, kind of the basis of healing and enga- healing-centered engagement, right? Because we are understanding we're coming from a different place. Right. So now how do you help me when my ideas start from somewhere different? Right, right. Where our, our, the very place that kind of we have been positioned in our society has been brought on by trauma, <laughs> right? right? Like it's like, right, it's, right exactly. Um, right, that there's, there's trauma just by virtually us being born Black. There's not that consideration oftentimes, right, in, you know, mm-hmm. therapeutic practices. And so I think a lot of our work, you, you know, you and me and, you know, other folks that we know has been about like, how do we, how do we bring that more into you know, healing and therapy spaces, right? Where we can actually talk about, you know, how racism impacts your mental health, right? right. Where we can actually talk about how, you know, um, systemic vi- violence, you know what I mean? Against black folks, you know, impacts, you know, your stress levels, right? And mm-hmm. how living in impoverished communities and, you know, and, and living in poverty because of being of color impacts your mental health. So we can actually bring that into the therapy space. So as you'll remember, at the end of each episode, we'll highlight some takeaways. Remember our heel bop takeaways? <laughs> Y'all remember that. <laughs> our healing while black takeaways. Right. So our takeaways today, um, we're highlighting some ways our listeners can access therapy. Wonderful. So there are a lot of... Um, especially during the pandemic, many and most therapists are working remotely. So the access to therapy has become a little bit easier in that you don't necessarily have to get to the office. Um, So one of those places is Talkspace. And this is a professional support online therapy service. These are actual counselors. Um, You can contact them through text, video, or audio, talking on the phone. Um, That is one way to access therapy. If you're looking to identify a therapist for yourself, Psychology Today is a great resource to um, locating therapists in your area. They have pictures. You can see if they're black, you can see if they're white, you can see if they, you know, are space animals, whatever you're looking for. Um, And I know with Psychology Today, you can specifically, you know, look up like the you know, you can look up a therapist based on the insurance they accept, based on, you know, their, their race um, and specific supports that you need. Like you can look up somebody that specializes in, you know, uh, depression or anxiety or ADHD or, or, or something else. Um, and I know another good source, um, kind of shout out to the 
Therapy for Black Girls podcast, um, there is, they have a website um, where you can look up Black therapists in your specific area. Absolutely. And they, and their podcast also um, is a great resource. I love listening to Therapy for Black Girls. Me too. And as in regards to accessing it and affording therapy, Medicaid, if you have Medicaid coverage and you don't have private insurance, you therapy is, is available to you through your Medicaid insurance plan. Therapy no longer is only for those who can afford to pay out of pocket or for those who have their own private insurance. Correct. Correct. And so, so Medicaid in, in all cases, I believe you actually don't have to come out of pocket at all um, to pay for therapy services. And so, you know, when you go on, when you reach out to a therapist, you want to just check, you know, to see if they accept Medicaid insurance. Um, if you are a therapist or a mental health provider, we want to encourage you to please accept Medicaid as Absolutely. insurance because that gives more Black folks, more folks that live, you know, low-income folks access um, to quality mental health care. Absolutely. You know, just remember that we can also get healing from being engaged in social change work, right? Working to change the very systems that bring us issues and problems in the first place. There's something healing in that. In the same way there's systemic oppression, there can be systemic healing. Ooh, and I like we that. And bring that about ourselves. So thanks to our listeners for tuning in to the Healing While Black podcast. Today, we want to thank our listeners from the U.S., uh, from Maryland and Rhode Island and D.C. Woo! Hey! Yeah. Uh, we also want to thank our listeners from across the globe. We got, we got folks from Trinidad and Tobago. Hey! Folks from the U.K. and the Netherlands. Come through, Netherlands! <laughs> <laughs> We love this. So continue to tune in and continue to spread the word, share the podcast. Uh, be sure to hit us up on IG at HWB podcast or email us at healing podcast at gmail.com. And we'd like to thank our guest, Oren Howard, for joining us for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Bye.